most of them two open houses in a day so that's six open house in a weekend oh. but that actually what made my name to be out there repetition repetition is key to everything and anything the more that the people are seeing your name in each corner of the street the more that they're seeing your ads or your signs that okay this lady is not really kidding this lady is really working this neighborhood right welcome to the top broker podcast where we have on top producing real estate agents around the country and learn what separated them from the rest. Today, we are honored to have on Janiel Salazar, who's the top producing solo agent in the greater Indianapolis area, holding the number one spot in the Indiana Business Journal rankings for the last four years. She is the top Compass agent in the area and one of the overall top agents in the state by any ranking with over $60 million in sales for 2020 2021 and 2022. She focuses on luxury real estate in West Clay, Carmel, and Westfield, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Janiel's website is janielsalazar.com, and her email is janiel.salazar at compass.com. That's J E N N I L dot S A L A Z A R at compass.com. If you have anyone thinking about a relocation to Indiana, Janiel is definitely the person to talk to. Okay. Let's get to the show. Okay, so today we have Janiel Salazar with us. Uh, Janiel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Phil, for uh, for giving me the opportunity to be with you on this podcast today. I'm quite thrilled and excited. You're very welcome. Well, I always like to start with a little bit about you and how you got your start in real estate. So can you tell us about your start in real estate and maybe specifically focusing on like your first two years in the business? Sure. So my start in real estate really uh, rooted and originated in Pennsylvania. So I came from the Pennsylvania market. uh, That was way back 2005 when I started in real estate and really just coming out of uh, from the restaurant business. So we just sold two of our uh, franchise restaurants at that time. And I was looking for something to go into without being in the restaurant business anymore. So I have a friend that said, hey, you know what? You're so good with people. Maybe you should try real estate. I'm like, really? So <laughs> you know what? I just, I, I, I just told myself, you know what? This is a different field. I never knew anything about real estate at that time. And I just went for it. I took the exam, passed the exam, and uh uh, went on and joined Coldwell Banker. So Coldwell Banker was actually my very first company at that time. So what was that? What was that like? What were your first couple of deals like? Where did they come from? Well, I will tell you that probably everybody could uh, relate to this because, as you know, when you're first starting in the business, anything with with pulse in it, you just service. <laughs> so I mean, we all start with basically having the phone duty. Is that how you call them at that time? I can't even uh, remember anymore, but everybody will, will be having a phone duty. And anybody who called, I remember this one in, in Pennsylvania that you just have to serve it, if, even if it's a $50,000 property. There's really no, not much choice for any new agent at that time, but just to go for it, you know? But I think that that actually had led to a whole lot more bigger things for me. Wow. So the... The phone was on a rotation, so any leads that called would would go from person to person? Correct. Yep. 
So it's like you have uh, almost like a schedule. So, okay, three to five uh, today would be Janelle. You know, there will be other people in the morning who will do the same thing. So it mm -hmm. was just a typical thing for Coldwell Banker at that time. We had a similar thing, but it was just for the desk because it was a retail uh, storefront mm -hmm. where I started. And those were my first deals too. Yes. So you started out really working, really working the phone and, yes. and just trying to get in front of clients any way you could. Exactly. And, uh, and I will tell you, it was a little difficult because back then, real estate was okay. It was really not as great, I would say. And plus Pennsylvania, it's, it's a very mixed uh, a clientele that you get, you know, where, where I came from. So I came from uh, the suburbs of, uh, uh, it's really Harrisburg and Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I came from and started my real estate career. Um, the first two years, I would say that for me, my first six months was a little rough just because I had to basically uh, do the process. I mean, the, you have to start from the bottom. And I can tell from experience that I really started from the bottom, not knowing anybody, not knowing anything about the business. But I got lucky after the six months time. So after six months, I was able to actually meet my mentor, Jerry mm -hmm. Bedard. She is still a very well-known luxury agent in Pennsylvania to this day. And uh, because I was hungry for business and I was hungry to just do just about anything, I told her, you know what? I'm your slave. I could do whatever you want. You know? <laughs> so she represented two high-end builders at that time. And she was looking for somebody who could actually sit in for those open houses. As a new agent, you know, Typically, we just say yes to any opportunity out there. And I saw that as an opportunity and quite honestly led me to represent another luxury uh, builder. Mm -hmm. So I basically was her, uh, I, I am her girl for Saturday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, basically. So I am that person that just did all of those open houses for her at that time until an opportunity presented itself that there's another luxury builder who would like to be represented and I was able to get that job after that, after my experience with, with the open houses. And is that really what you got you started in, in the luxury market, um, working yeah. with, with new builds? Absolutely. Yeah. So where I actually first started, this is a neighborhood. Uh, this is actually Forest Hills in Harrisburg. And uh, we did sell only from 900 to over 4 million at that time back in 2004. So it's, it's really was a very good experience for me. And at the same time, I learned my way to that niche of that luxury market. And I owe it all to Jerry Bedard to this day. I thank her all the time you know, for that. I think a lot of top agents have learned from other top agents. Correct. Yeah. I, I owe my, my start with Jerry Bedard, I could honestly say, I mean, if she's listening, I mean, she knows this. Yep. That's really, that's great. So how long were you in Pennsylvania um, before you made the move to Indiana? So this is, uh, this is very funny and, uh, and I hope not all real estate agents will follow my tracks. Okay. So I moved to, uh, Pennsylvania, I moved to Indiana from Pennsylvania for love. Okay. So this is totally different, but this is true story. And I actually met my husband now from my open house. Really? Yes. And the common joke was that, do you actually sleep with all of your clients? And I said, no, just for this one. <laughs> but that this is actually a true story. Uh, 
I met my husband from one of my open houses that I was not even really supposed to be at that open house. So it's all but timing and, you know, it's just meant to be, I would say. But it was back in 2009 uh, when I met my husband now, and he is actually uh, president for UPS at that time. He is uh, vice president at that time, and he was uh, getting promoted to become president for the Midwest for UPS. And uh, he said, we were dating at that time, hey, I am going to move to, uh, to, to, to Indiana. Would you be willing to come with me? I'm like, and I said to him, are you trying to tell me to leave the business that I started from ground up for you? And he said, yes, and that's what, really what I'm trying to tell you. Well, because heart, my heart just, you know, kind of said it all, and I just said yes. So wow. basically, I left everything I had in, you know, in, um, in, in Pennsylvania and moved to Indiana knowing nobody. Back in 2010 is when I moved here. Wow. Well, the only thing that tells me is that anyone out there who is thinking that they can't build from the ground up, I mean, look at the amazing business you built. Yes, you That's can. Amazing. You, so you took the knowledge that you gained um, and you, you brought it there and you really built from the ground up. That's amazing. I did not. Absolutely. And I will tell you, it was very difficult. And as a minority, uh, like myself, I'm, I'm a woman and, you know, I am a uh, from another culture as well it was very difficult you know to to get into a place where it's really uh, you know dominated uh, you know like it, it is really caucasian dominated neighborhood mm -hmm. but that really did not stop me because i will tell you that when i came to indiana the hoosier hospitality just melts my heart i mean uh there's something to say about people in indiana that just uh, tremendous because I did not really feel discriminated or anything at all. I was felt love. I, I always have felt love from people in, you know, in Indiana. I, wow. I did not feel that I was different from them. And they did not really make me feel that I was really different from them. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I just am still getting over that you, <laughs> that you could have, you could have picked up anywhere. You could have went to Hawaii or Alaska yeah. or a different country, Canada, you could have and probably built the same business. That's what that tells me. Yes. And I will tell you, it, it was difficult because again, Midwest, I, I told my husband, what is out there? All my knowledge of Indiana at that time was that is but cornfields. And I was actually right when I came in here, I'll tell you 12 years, 13 years ago, everything is but cornfields, but it is such a progressive town. And Looking back 13 years ago to what it has become now, I, I am just so amazed. And our children actually graduated schools in Indiana. It was just a fabulous state. And I could not uh, think more my decision at that time. That's great. So for those of us less familiar with Indiana, maybe compare and contrast it with um, maybe Pennsylvania where you started. Sure. So the East Coast is totally different, even the hospitality of people, you know, to compare with the with the people in Indiana. I would say that uh, Indiana for me is the best kept secret in the Midwest that still has not been discovered to this day, only because to this day, our housing here is still very affordable. Compared to the East Coast and the West Coast market, we have not really reached that 
threshold yet for the pricing. We are just getting there. So right now, 1.5 million is the norm, which a lot of people laugh at me when I talk to other colleagues from other cities. 1.5 million, you can never buy a townhouse in San Francisco. But in here, you could actually live in almost like a mansion at 1.5 million with a pool, probably two acres of land. So the affordability factor is great here in Indiana. And I would say that what we pride most is that this is really a state we're in. We encourage that uh, great camaraderie with people. And it is such a family state. And that is really why a lot of folks are moving to this area. And when you say 1.5 million, you mean th these are the luxury homes because that's really where you where you work in. Anyone listening now should go to Janelle's profile and just look at some of her listings are just beautiful. I mean, what? how many square feet are some of these listings? So the 1.5 listings now could still be about 10,000 square feet, but probably they are older. Okay, so that's the big difference now. What COVID had brought to the table for for Indiana is 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 very different because now a lot of folks had moved here during the last two years, and what we have seen is that what made our pricing this high now is because a lot of folks moving from the Chicago market, from the West Coast and the East Coast market are so used to that high pricing. We're not, but they drove that pricing up. So now there is one neighborhood that is called Holiday Farms in the suburbs of Indianapolis, close to Carmel. This is Zionsville. Starting price is about $2 million if you get lucky. If you get lucky to find a lot, lot is about 500000 so about $2 million. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we're pushing about that $2, 3000000 million, $4 million now, you know, in those uh, pocket areas, I would say. But the normal still... For median price, I would say, at least I will talk about Carmel, Indiana, because this is really what I service the most, and this is where I sell. Minimum price, average price is about 512000 probably. Got but it. we have about uh, an increase of 17% from last year to this year. Wow. Days on the market are still about seven days for that price point, all the way to 800000 but the upper end are staying a little longer on the market. So just coming back to the normal swing of things prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. But valuation is still there and it's not going to change. It will just continue to soar up. And, uh, and I just cannot wait for that time because I've always been known to be a disruptor in this, in this town, meaning when everybody's selling or listing something for a million, I'm already at 1.5 million. When somebody's listing at 3 million, I'm already at 4.5 million. Right, right. And I get the price. So I think there's something to be said about that. So I have been very successful in doing that. And I just see the value in, in most homes in here. They're all I mean, built really nicely. And in fact, I, I am a lover of the old homes compared to the new. And where do your typical, um, your, your seller clients, where do they come from? Is it, are, are you mostly word of mouth at this point? Or do you do a lot of creative marketing? Or um, where do you typically get your clients from? So you you will be surprised. I I will. This is uh this is probably for those starting in in the business, and I hope that they pay attention because whenever I have you know I, I get invited, you know to talk to uh, to a pool of agents. People sometimes don't typically um, believe that I have gotten to where I'm at because of my open houses. 
When I came to Indiana 13 years ago, I never knew a soul over here. Did not know anyone. But I worked my butt off for two years straight. I told my husband, I'm not going to see you. Probably we're not going to have a date or whatever. But I'm going to work for two years straight. So I did Friday, Saturday, Sunday open houses. I'm open most of them two open houses in a day. So that's six open house in a weekend. Wow. But that actually what made my name to be out there. Repetition, repetition is key to everything and anything. The more that the people are seeing your name in each corner of the street, the more that they're seeing your ads or your signs that, okay, this lady is not really kidding. This lady is really working this neighborhood. Right. So that's how I gained my respect and really the traction from, uh, from, from this city, especially Carmel, because they had just seen me work. That's great. And at, at that time, how many listings did you have six listings you were, you were doing? So, or were you doing one listing over and over, like a couple of times a weekend or how were you scheduling that? So at that time, because it was still, a, a, you know, at that time frame, we're in uh, the real estate market is really not that great back in 2010. In fact, when I came in here, it was a little depressed to tell you the truth. So uh, it tends to sit in the market a little longer. So probably uh, I will probably have about, I'd say, three listings at a time. So if they're all sitting on the market, I will open them all at the same time for that weekend. Got it. Got it. But it has it has paved way for where I where I'm at now. So I could tell you that at this point in my life and in my career, my business is purely referral. The only reason why I advertise is because of notoriety, just so people know that I'm here, you know. Uh, but other than that, I don't really uh, do any uh, marketing out there that is, you know, that that is done by a lot of agents. I I see and hear from agents that they're spending so much money, but I don't think that for me at least, I follow my system and I'm focused. I don't have I just put my blinders on and focus, and that's all that I do, and it worked. That's great. You should always find what works for you and, and, and do that. Sometimes you can get, it's great to listen to shows like this and get ideas from other people, but ultimately it has to fit into your business and your market. It doesn't fit uh, with, with everybody. Just like I said, there's a lot of people that thrives doing social media. I think it's because of my age. <laughs> I'm getting old. You know, I, I keep on telling my children, I said, I, I am at that age we're in. Social media and me just do not jive. You know, I said, I love the social media aspect. I think that you really get a following very quickly. But I still like that uh, touch, soft feel, you know, the feeling everybody and talking to everybody. I right. still like right. that one conversation and I only could get that if I am in front of the audience and how do you how do you stay in front of your your past clients and your I guess mostly your your past clients so that you can be top of mind for them how, how do you find what's your strategy for staying in front of your past clients Sure. So for me, the strategy is the same as my open house because I'm always open, you know, uh, for the weekend. My clientele base, I have about 7,000 actually in my email database. So they all get this email from me every week. I will have an open house email. Whatever I'm opening, they will get that. They will probably get sick and tired of me. But you know what? I don't really care. For every no, there's a yes. So just, you know. That's, that's how I think about things, but uh, it has helped me 
it's probably is not the way for a lot of people to uh, to be stay on top of mind but i do two events in a year that i think really uh, makes a big difference and really totally different from a lot of people so i sponsor the breakfast with santa in our little neighborhood every year so this is where we actually have you know santa photos with with the kids i will have the spread I mean, it's, it's like a full buffet so everybody could come and and have breakfast with santa and there's a lot of activities too and i sponsor this every year and just for my gratitude and thanks for the neighborhood that had helped me through the years wow that's yeah. great and, and how many people come come for the breakfast well, we just finished the breakfast with Santa. Actually, this Saturday we had five hundred people. That's a lot. That's a lot of. It's a lot of bacon. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if you you bet, there's a lot of bacon. Yep. Wow. Absolutely. So that's what I do every year. And then before COVID, I was very good at doing my client appreciation party. Mm -hmm. However, due to COVID, that one kind of stopped, and I need to get back on that. So to me, it's really more of that uh, kind of, uh, I don't really want it to hold it actually in my house whenever I have a party. I uh, In my office, I mean, I want it to be in my house because I wanted them to feel that my appreciation part is not about the business. It's about me just thanking them for the support that they've done for me through the years. Because I will not be where I'm at today if not for all of my clients. That's great. I think that's really, that's really amazing. So I also think that it's so great to have like the, the Santa and the, and the party and things where you're physically there with them. It's an event so that people might say, what are you doing on Friday? And they say, oh, I'm going to my, my amazing broker is having this party she's done for years, you know, and Correct. the, the, uh, the breakfast with Santa is that that's for the whole community, not just for your clients. That's right? uh, for the whole community, not just for my clients. And since I am actually, you know, I'm concentrated in the village of West Clay, but that doesn't mean that this is the only place that I sell, but mm -hmm. village of West Clay in general actually has 1700 household. So it is, it is really a, a, a town of its own, I would say. Got yeah. it. And a majority of my clientele are here. I live here too. My own office is also located in the village of West Clay. So I have vested interest in this neighborhood. So I make it a point that I, I express to the people my mm -hmm. sincere, sincere gratitude for them. To them. That's wonderful. So mm -hmm. you're in that village. You must have pretty good market share at this point. Do you? I do. Yeah, pretty great market share. Yeah, probably this year, I'm just in the village alone, probably I'm about 25 million or 30 million in the next uh, next broker, probably at 7 million. Wow. Yeah, I yep. can see that. Are there any um, are there any tools that you use that have a big impact on your business that you, um, you know, any any CRMs or, or anything like that? Nothing really. I've always uh, I, I've always had uh, really been very dedicated and loyal to my my gmail just because it's the only email that i had from the very start however i will i will tell you that this is my first year full year with compass mm -hmm. and joining compass really uh because the compass platform is very good i find it very useful at least for uh, for my marketing assistant to to be able to whip up you know like a marketing campaign so very quickly as you know, I mean, if you've used our tools, mm -hmm. I, to me, that is a tool that uh, that has been a differentiator for for me versus when I was from the other, you know, brokerage. 
this one also had kept me uh, front and center also to a lot of my clients because they have a much better CRM compared to most that I've used in the past. But uh, to say that I am only focusing on that, uh, I will be lying if I say that because my other avenues of marketing is, you know, again, it's that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, event that I do. Mm -hmm. And also the busier you get, sometimes, you know, you're busy working the active business you have. It's a little bit hard to to be filling the pipeline at the same time. And then when referrals are coming in. Well, I will tell you, I said, I wish that I have 30 hours in a day because I wanted to be calling and saying hello to all my clients. But I have to admit, I am guilty of that. You know, I, I think for a lot of agents too, we wanted to be out there for the, for the, for the clients, but we just cannot do it, you know. I mean, I'm, I only have 24 hours out of the day, you know. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're mostly a solo practitioner. You have uh, some support staff, some uh, some admins, but you are the client facing person. Is that right? Absolutely. So my business is actually I'm still an individual agent to this day. Uh, I do have three assistants. They're all licensed, but none of them wants to sell. I think it's because they see how I work. My work is 24 seven. And it just doesn't stop the moment that I leave the office. My business is ongoing. Uh, I think probably the good question to follow up for this is that, do I want it to keep it that way? Or maybe I spoiled <laughs> my clients. That's why they're calling me all the time. I think that uh, if I can do uh, things over again, maybe that's one thing that I would want it to change a little. However, I don't regret everything that I've done in my business. I think everything that I've done in my business really have endeared me to the hearts of my clients. But honestly, it it sounds like a lot of your success has been because you've been so full service and you you and you care so much about them and it's hard when that is your differentiator to then mm -hmm. build a team and to hand things off and to mm -hmm. you know, I can understand why they might be why that would might be hard. Um but uh, I'll be I'll I'll be interested in having you back on in you know a year or two and, and to see you know uh, where if if Janelle Salazar actually had taken that you know that decision of bringing somebody on board yeah. I, I I'm very yeah. close uh, close to that point but we will see I wish that I could find somebody that I could clone I mean it's easy to say as you know Phil but it's it's hard to you know to to really find that person that has the same passion. You know, it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard to, you know, hiring in this business is hard. Finding the perfect person is hard and teams are good, but they're not perfect. And there is things that get lost in communication. And um, so I can. Yeah, I, I totally understand it. Um, OK, I have a, a funny question I like to ask, sure. which is what is the one piece of real estate advice that you disagree with the most? So for me, just to give you an example, is I don't. I know that we're always told to pre-qualify, 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 but I'll, I'll usually work with the client for some time before I really get deep into their finances because I find that there's so much trust involved with mm -hmm. them laying out, especially if they're a cash buyer, are they really going to show me all their brokerage accounts and everything immediately? So mm -hmm. even though a lot of people, and when I was trained, I was taught to pre-qualify, I, I go with my gut a lot when it comes to that. I have the same sentiment as you, as you do. And in fact, uh, like you, that's probably one thing that to me, I don't believe in just because 
I grew this business by just trusting people. Uh, this is basically, I mean, if I meet somebody, I just trust that person. In fact, I tell, this is a story that I share with my assistants that anybody that walk into this, uh, to this open house, we will convert them as clients, but I could tell you that we cannot really judge them by how they look, okay, what they wear, and what their pocketbooks are, okay? Because I remember this uh, from one of my builders. She said to me, Janelle, one way for us to find out if these people could actually buy the home is through the brand that they're wearing on their pocketbooks. I laugh. I laugh and, and I told her, you know what? I think that that is so discriminatory, quite honestly. And how can you judge somebody by their pocketbooks? You know, since I'd, I'd never pre-qualify anybody to begin with like you, because to me, I, I just feel that I'm asking too much. And some people just don't want to be asked about those questions. You know, mm -hmm. don't you agree? I mean, to me, I agree. And sometimes with their pocketbook, you can tell how much money they've spent but you can't tell how much money they have. Correct. You know, it's, exactly. you, you know that they've bought the pocketbook, but yes. do they have the money in the bank? And, exactly. You know, one of my first jobs was selling engagement rings mm. uh, for Sam Dial Jewelers in Pullman, Washington. Shout out. And uh, he always told me out there, out West, a lot of his biggest clients were uh, farmers. So they come in in their overalls, muddy with their boots mm -hmm. and they'd come in and buy a $20,000, you know, anniversary ring for their wife. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a big sale. And he would just say, watch out, don't judge people, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And mm -hmm. I think just giving everyone a chance, you know, with, you never know someone coming in who's just wearing a polo shirt and sweatpants, you know, that could be a, a tech, you know, billionaire. So you just don't know. I, I will tell you in my niche market of this luxury market, I have seen the mo the the wealthiest people don't really dress up most if not all of the wealthiest people that i have met at my open houses because that's really where i meet them are just regular people in fact they really came to the open house dressed that way just so you do not you know you do not <laughs> right. treat them differently just because of right. their looks that you will still treat them the same as everybody else so digging into the open house thing a little more, because it sounds like that's been a really big aspect of growing your business. How do you conduct an open house? And what do you think you do that you do better than other agents? My open house, according to my clients, are always a party. Because it really is a way for my clients to come and engage with me, ask questions about the neighborhood. So for some reason, whenever I have an open house, I will have a bunch of people. It will just be a very, very busy open house. Just because it is the one day or three days out of the week that the people do not have to have an appointment with me. They could just, you know, swing into the open house and ask me questions about the neighborhood, how the market is. So it, to me, it has become uh, an event wherein it's open for everybody to come get information and at the same time buy a home you know so it just have been a, a great you know a, a great event i call it an event because it is really is an event i i invite you quite honestly if you have the time to come in here you will see what i'm talking about if you attend one of my open houses i would love to um i'm definitely i'm definitely coming to visit 
Um, but I want to, yeah. Do you do, do you have, do you have food and drinks or anything like that? Or is it, no. is it, how long do you, do you do them for an hour and a half? Um, do you invite the neighbors? Uh, or do you just, since you have that big database, you send it out to, you know, 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that brings some people in. Yeah. Um, so, typical, like what I said, I always, I always like to do things the same repetition, the same thing all the time because it had worked for me. Changing something now will probably uh, kind of ruin what I have done in the past. So I just have to stick with the plan. So I, I do my typical email on a Friday night and then I will do the open houses, you know, uh, Saturday, Sunday. I don't do the Friday anymore quite often just because I don't really have the need. In fact, I just got back to doing the open houses again because I have um, I have one or two lingering you know, lingering uh, properties that are not uh, are quite found, you know, the, you know, the buyers yet. So uh, that's all that I do. I don't really bring food anymore. I've learned through, through the years that you're just attracting, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, you just have to clean up the house more if you have yep, food, yep. you know, so I just don't do that anymore. I, I used to do that. But kids not. throwing it or exactly <laughs> yeah. you learn through the years you know working in this business and uh, some of those things i try not to do anymore do you bring any of your um any of your admins w- with you to help you with open houses or you do them all by yourself oh, no absolutely so since uh, my admins are all uh, licensed so they are allowed to you know to to be in the open house with me especially if it is a big house just for safety for you know for all the agents out there who are you know who are just starting and uh, uh beautiful girls starting and please not be alone in any open houses. Try to bring an admin with you or uh, probably tell one of your loved ones where you are at and what time frame you are going to mm. be there. Uh, I've always been very cautious just because of this big houses that I've done open houses on. I am a very petite lady. My husband always told me that a person could just stuff you inside the trunk of their car and nobody will know. You know, so I've always... Uh, done that as a habit to bring somebody with me for safety and precaution. Absolutely. Especially in these big houses. I mean, Correct. when I'm doing an open house in a building with a doorman, that's a mm. one bedroom apartment and they let me know who's coming up. It's mm. a little bit different. Correct. But for us, we do this uh, open houses in, in a sprawl of probably five acres. You know, I've done, um, an open house on a 52 acre property. So right. in those, in, in those kind of instances, my husband will need to know where I'm at, you know, so for that particular time, just so if something happens, you know, I don't want him to be worried about me. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the introduction, I brought up um, what your sales record has been, but for the past three years, you've consistently sold over $60 million of real estate, mm-hmm. which is on average $5 million a month. Mm-hmm. So what is your rough, what's your average transaction size? So my average transaction size, uh, probably, uh, I would say 750 average, but again, because I have uh, this luxury market niche, most of the time I will sell my listing double bag. 
you know, I will sell both sides. That's why my uh, transaction, my gross transaction is higher than most. I will end up typically representing both sides. And that is really a specialty. I would say that I have mastered, you know, just doing this uh, high end listing. I, I, for me, it's less, uh, it's less hassle and I could maneuver the deal uh, better if I have both buyers and uh, sellers. I can understand why if I was in, in West Clay mm -hmm. and I saw some signs and I saw mm -hmm. this woman has three or four listings of the six that I'm interested in mm -hmm. and I call you and then you show me one or two of your listings and why not, even if it's not your listing, you, I could see why uh, after meeting you, seeing you a couple of times, then I would say, oh, of course I'm going to work with her. She knows this area the best. Correct. Yeah. So that, that's uh, what we have done. That's why our production is very high. Because I do sell uh, quite a bit of me and me on my uh, on my sales. Yep. Right, right. But I imagine you also represent a lot of the buyers on the. Yes. <laughs> you know, of the any other agent gets a, a listing on your turf, you probably bring uh, the buyer. The, well, the, the again, most people will say if Janelle did not list it, she will sell it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's great. At least here in my in my little neck of the hood. Neck of the budget. Yeah. No, that's really great. I think that what we can all learn from this is that the more that you can specialize and own your turf and your territory, mm -hmm. the, you know, the better. If it's your block, if it's your, mm -hmm. I'm thinking from a, a New York perspective, you know, where we have these little bitty neighborhoods that are just, you know, <laughs> a, a, a smaller neighborhood within a neighborhood, a little pocket. Exactly. Yeah. A couple of buildings, that yeah. kind of thing. But it, the more that you can be the expert, mm -hmm. you know, the more that that it works for you. So, yeah. Um, can you talk us through the, you told us a little bit earlier, but um, how the market is right now and where you're seeing it in the future. Are you, how many days on the market is, mm -hmm. is average? And yep. So sort of uh, what I could tell you right now, again, average price probably in Carmel, this may not be the houses that I sell, but in general, just a little perspective for the viewers out there who, who are listening. Um, average price right now in Carmel is about 512,000. And there's there with those price, a uh, price point, they are selling still between five to seven days. But different on the higher end market. The higher end market tend to sit a little longer on the market right now. Just because, you know, these are also the properties that, yes, most of the people that I service in the higher end are actually cash buyers. But the cash buyers are also the very smart buyers. You know, they know that there's a lot of things, in, I mean, associated with this interest rate that they don't care about. But also, the stock market is not doing good right now. So most folks right now really are kind of see uh, trying to hold off and waiting on what the early spring will bring to you know bring to us. But I don't foresee this slowness continuing on for the spring. I am seeing a very vibrant spring market, quite honestly, at least where we are here in Indianapolis and our suburbs. Mm -hmm. That's great. In fact, I can say that. Whenever somebody will tell me that the market is going to be slow the next year, the more that I actually think of ways that I could do differently so that despite the market being slow, I could still service my client in a different way and I could still, you know, make money from real estate. There's so much business to be had in real estate. And uh, I can't tell you enough. If you just, if, if you will just look, dig deeper, there's so much that you could 
profit from real estate. It may not be just mm-hmm. from selling, but there are just so many avenues to make money in real estate. Um, I have one more question for you. If, uh, oh, actually I have, I have two more questions for you. Okay. <laughs> um, one, how did you develop your relationships with contractors and stagers and, you know, um, mortgage uh, brokers, you know, can you talk to me a little bit about those, those relationships um, and how you built those over the, over the years and what you can offer to your clients? Um, so this a very good question uh, coming from you. So most of my vendors have been with me for about 10 to 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So these are all vendors of mine that were all pre-vetted. So when I say that most, if not all of these vendors had worked in my own homes had worked in my office because I will not trust anybody to go to my client's house without me knowing how they service myself first. Because it is my name on the line if I give a referral to somebody, especially for contractors. I, 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 I find it very difficult for me to just, you know, sending somebody to, to a client of mine that I haven't vetted. That's a great standard to have that if you wouldn't, if you're not happy with the work they've done for you personally, you're not going to recommend them. Exactly. So that's why my contractors have stayed with me forever because they know one simple mistake or if I hear something from my clients and they were serviced by, you know, by them or by that company, they were off my list basically. Because I have wow. a very good list of uh, vendors that, again, through the years, I've had some great relationships with. But if they can keep up with the standard of excellence that I wanted for me and for my clients, they are also assured of a long-lasting business relationship with me. Right. Do they? Do you also um, do you negotiate on behalf of your clients for them, or, or do you feel like you have to sometimes? Um, it, it all depends, you know, since I don't want my client first and foremost, that is, um, I hear a lot of these things happen most times in real estate. You know, when you start negotiating for your clients, the clients think that you are getting something out of that, you know, out of that transaction. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that I try to avoid. Uh, I, I try to stay away when it comes to the money matters because I always tell my clients I am good at what I do. That's identifying the real estate for you and also letting you know what we could do for this real estate. But when it comes to paying the contractors, that's on you. I do have yeah. pricing. So most of my vendors will actually provide great pricing for my clients compared to what they will give to another you know, person. Uh, because of my relationship with them. So that relationship that I have with my clients is passed on to my clientele. That's the benefit that they're getting. My pricing and the excellent service from this contractor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's smart that you don't, you're already brokering one deal. You don't want to broker no, all those deals between them and the painter and the, you know, no. and you, you definitely, I, we, I do the same thing where, we have a lot of relationships with movers Mm -hmm. and the movers often offer, you know, a commission to us or a fee. And whenever I get that, I just hand that back to the client and I say, I don't, I don't want a piece of this. And I want you to, you know, I want this to be as cheap as possible for you. So I just give it straight back because I don't want to be, I'm not in the business of referring movers. I'm in the business of selling. And not only that, Phil, you know what I found out through the years, the vendors 
And the clients talk among each other. If they find out that your realtor is actually taking a cut, that does not look good on you. You know. Yeah, it just doesn't. Good. It doesn't make sense on so many levels that oh, it's right. just you know. If I have a good, if I have a good mover that I can recommend, that's good enough. That's that's exactly. great. That, me, that solves the problem. For the client. Yeah, I'm just yep. happy to yep. find that best that could be trustworthy enough for me to share their information to my clients. I'm very protective, mm -hmm. as you can tell probably, the way I talk about my clients, I'm very protective of my clients. And this is also, again, the reason why my client had, you know, have been very loyal to me. I have an assistant that I recently hired and she said to me, she was working on all of my files and she said, Janil, there must be a mistake, she said, because this one person, I've seen at least five different listing contract, you know, or five purchase agreement for this person. I said, no, there's nothing wrong. And that is not a mistake. That person actually had bought five homes for me and have listed four homes for me already. So majority of a my nine time clients, yes, majority of my clients have bought at least three homes from me. Yes. Wow. That's really something. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I, I can't thank you enough for a wonderful interview. And how, how should listeners get in touch with you if they have a referral for you in your area or if they're looking to buy and sell themselves um, in your area? Sure. So I am, I, you can easily find me quite honestly. I don't carry business cards anymore. I always tell people and they actually have a chuckle and have a laugh at this. I said, you can Google me. <laughs> you could Google my name and yeah. my information will come out. Or easily enough, you could go and visit my website at www.janielsalazar.com. My phone number is 317-610-6252. If they do want it to wonderful, or call Phil. I'm pretty sure Phil will share my information. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you. And I'm going to put all this in the show notes. And I'm going to link to a few of your properties so people can take a look. And... Um, yeah, I want to thank you again for, uh, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks for listening to the Top Broker Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or would like to suggest a guest for the show, I can be reached at phil at topbrokerpodcast.com.